Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Helping Hands of Our Community, addressing the Social Determinants of Health podcast. I am your host, Roger Saclupe, and along with my co-host, Drew Reynolds, we are here to highlight the incredible work of individuals in our community who are helping create healthy and thriving communities. Drew, how have you been, brother? Always strong, strong, always, man. Doing great. Drew, I am super stoked today for a few reasons. One, we have two incredible individuals in our studio. Our guests for today's episode are Shantiqua Neely, Executive Director of A Child's Place, and Delana Murdoch, Grants and Data Associate of A Child's Place. Here's another reason why I'm stoked. It's March Madness. March Madness is one of my favorite times of the year. For our listeners who don't know and don't know what I'm talking about, this means ACC Basketball Tournament and the Big Dance, the NCAA. Drew, everyone knows, who knows me, knows that I'm a Duke fan. And I know that you went to BC and Notre Dame, so you're just out of the running. But I mean, you have to bring that up. Like, I mean, we had a bad year, all right? And, you know, I think that uh, we can just move on. Well, let's add that year to years. <laughs> right, there. So here's another reason I'm stoked. The ACC Player and Rookie of the Year, Zion Williamson, is back. And I'm going to go and watch him play tonight. You know, you know the, the funny thing about this, Roger, is that, like, you're talking about going to see Duke tonight. And, but we're, like, pre-recording this, so most people are going to listen to this podcast, <laughs> like, a couple weeks later. And they're going to be laughing at you when Duke loses in the first round of the Big Dance. That was cold. <laughs> well, enough about basketball, all right? We want to welcome our guests. My apologies to our Duke fans in the audience. As long as, long as uh, hey, you know what? I will, I will guarantee you when it comes time to April, we will be holding up the trophy. So, but Oh, it, man, you heard it here first, people. Okay, but enough about basketball. We want to welcome our guests from A Child's Place because we would definitely want our listeners to know about the incredible work that uh, A Child's Place is doing right now and also about our guests. So, Drew? Absolutely. So, Shantigua Neely is the executive director of A Child's Place, a Charlotte-area nonprofit dedicated to erasing the impact of homelessness on children and their education. Cecilia began her career working in corporate America and then soon decided to focus her skills towards servant leadership. In her current capacity, she is responsible for implementation of policies, annual goals and objectives, and oversight of financial program and administrative management of the agency. Delana Murdoch is the Grants and Data Associate of A Child's Place. Her current work is preparing grant applications and reports and supporting efforts to evaluate the impact of family homelessness through data collection and analysis. She graduated with her master's from the UNC Charlotte School of Social Work in 2015, where her research and field experience focused on program evaluation, social and emotional learning, and education. And I just have to add that these are two of some of Charlotte's finest right here. We are so <laughs> thrilled to have them in the studio today to do this episode. Some people may consider Delana to also be a grants and data wizard. <laughs> <laughs> so, Delana, Shintuko, for our listeners who might not be familiar with A Child's Place, can you share a little bit about your agency and how you support our communities in need? Sure. First, before getting started, thank you to both Roger and Drew for allowing us this opportunity to talk about the most vulnerable students in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. And those are students who are experiencing homelessness or the technical term it can even tell. And so what that in essence means is that these students do not have a regular fixed nightly residence to go to. And so there's close to 5,000 students in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools that are experiencing this crisis. And A Child's Place is stepping in the gap to erase the impact of homelessness on those children and their education. 
So you mentioned that there are 5,000 children currently right now who are experiencing homelessness in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools. How many of the children that you just mentioned, the 5,000, where are they located in, in, within CMS? Are you seeing more on the East Corridor, the West Corridor, uh, the North, South, inside Central Charlotte? So majority of our students are located in the West Corridor of the schools. And I'd probably say half of them are living in a doubled up situation, meaning that they're staying with friends or family members, which is a very unstable situation. Um, we know what that looks like. If there's one bad evening and the family goes from having a quote unquote stable environment to an unstable environment because now they're on the street. And so that's the majority of, of the students um, situation. But then second to follow that is living in the shelter setting. And so that shelter setting can be very crowded. So when I think about our students showing up the next day to school, trying to perform in the classroom, it's very difficult because our students have not gotten a full night's sleep. We're not able to do their homework, but we're expecting students to show up and be A-plus students. And, th and that's very difficult. So that's where a child's place comes in to make sure that once they get into the schoolhouse, that they're normalized to whatever that looks like. And really, our focus is our social worker or student advocate is making sure that between a student that is economically disadvantaged and housed and that student who is homeless or in, living in an insecure situation, you would not be able to tell the difference. And that's our sole focus on a day-to-day -day basis. Tell us a little bit about your staff. You, you mentioned you have social workers and family advocates. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do in the schools? Student advocates and social worker, yes. So our student advocates are really looking at creating individualized student plans for those children. And what that means is that they're making sure and they're touching base with school personnel to make sure that there are no gaps missing. If there's missing assignments or if there are increased absences, they are communicating with that personnel and trying to figure out how can they bridge that gap for that student. The student advocate is also touching base with the caregiver or that parent at least monthly to check in to figure out has that situation stabilized any and how do we step in. Our social workers are assessing the needs of that caregiver or that parent and trying to really work a plan of interventions that's going to put them on their feet, but also making referrals and connecting them to community resources that they would not have normally known about without the support of a child's place. Awesome. Thank you. So, Shantiqua, can you take us a little back in your uh, career and your life? So, what were some of the experiences that you had that led you to take on some of the awesome work that uh, you are doing today? So I look at this work not as work, and, and I don't see this as just a, another career move for me. I take it very personal, and I think that, or I know in my heart that this is my life's work. And so what I mean by that is I grew up in New York City, inner city, um, born and raised in the Bronx. And though I was not homeless, we grew up in, in poverty, severe poverty. So I always had somewhere safe to go at night. I knew that there was a place that I can call home. However, when it comes to making sure that all of my needs were met, there was some difficulty there. There were some nights where we were trying to figure out before the next month, when was our meal going to come in before my mom food stamps would come in? It was it was a struggle. And I, I remember counting coins, trying to go to the pizza shop to split a pizza for that night's meal. So it was pretty difficult. And when you're able to persevere 
in a situation like that um, and you're given opportunities either through mentors or through individual programs, you figure out that you have a duty to pay that forward and to give back. And so I, um, as you mentioned, Drew started in corporate America. But as I was going, I would say through the motions, I realized that there was a lot more that I can be doing with my life. There was a lot more that I can be doing to impact the community in which I came from. And so I decided to pivot. And many people thought I was crazy. Just imagine being first generation high school graduate, first generation um, college and graduate school graduate. People in my family thought I was crazy, but I knew that that was what I was called to do. And so that's when I started working with at-risk youth in a high school setting, making sure that they knew the value of education making sure that I was really promoting and giving them opportunities to think bigger, to dream bigger. And so the more I got into that work, I realized that it just wasn't what was happening in the schoolhouse. It was a lot of what was happening in the community. And the opportunity came at a child's place where we was looking at one particular student who was missing an excessive amount of days in school because she was out panhandling. And it made sense. Her basic needs were not being met. So how can I help this young lady? And so I decided to apply for a child's place and they thought it was a good fit. And here I am today. We're so glad that you listened to your heart and you answered that call. And now a child's place is a thriving agency because of your leadership. So thank you for that. Delena, I would like to ask you a couple of questions in regards to your work. So when we look at organizations such as a child's place or other organizations that work uh, hand in hand with the community, with individuals, in social work, we call it micro work, right? So you're direct practice, you're working in the trenches and, and doing all of this in order to help individuals thrive. Well, Delena, you have an interesting job as well, what we would consider macro social work. What you do is equally as important or sometimes even more important because you're you're the individual who is collecting information in order to make sure that agencies like A Child's Place continues to receive not only funding, but also to keep its purpose. So if you can tell us a little bit about what you do and kind of what led you to, to do this work. Yeah. So when I got my master's degree at UNC Charlotte, my internship was through Girls on the Run International, which that really shaped why I wanted to do kind of go in this path. So that was with program evaluation and curriculum work. And so, yeah, I just loved using data to tell a story and being behind the scenes in that way. And I just really love the youth serving organization as well. Yeah. So I moved into a child's place and I started as a student advocate because I thought it was really important to be on the ground and work with the population. But then knowing that I wanted to do evaluation work and work in data, I kind of moved my way into this hybrid position that was first just with data and evaluation. And then we incorporated the grant writing into it because we use the data for grant writing um, and reporting just as much as we do for program evaluation and talking about our impact. So kind of did a lot of different things at a child's place, but that's where I've landed. So you get a chance to work with community stakeholders, uh, whether it's individuals who are looking at funding organizations or perhaps even uh, bank executives. I'd say Shantico does a little bit more of the relationships with our stakeholders, but I attend a lot of the community meetings. So Leading on Opportunity right now is such a big initiative in Charlotte. So we like to all be at the table, talk about our impact and how our data is um, showcasing that. So 
I do a lot of the community initiatives and Chantico does a lot individually with our big donors and stakeholders. So Delaine is being very modest. Um, <laughs> she is very talented and she talked about really telling the story and she has a gift with writing. And we felt like we really needed her skill set in a place where we can clearly articulate because the work is very complex. It's complex work and it's not just a one a one type of solution with, okay, now the kids have housing, everything is all settled. But there's several, there's multiple factors that play into the stability of a child. And so we felt like we needed someone who was strong in that area to really articulate that through written communication when someone is not face-to-face with you or you're given that opportunity to meet with a banker to really tell that story. And so we wanted to pivot her so she can really lean on her strengths and help the agency's work be amplified. Andrew, I know you've also worked closely with Delaine on a few projects. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the work that she's done? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the fun things that we've been able to do at A Child's Place together is to really think critically about how to work and build capacity at an organizational level to focus on data-driven decision-making and creating kind of a data culture. And what's been so fun in working with Shantika and Delena has been able to do that work over time. So what does that look like? Usually when we think about programs or approaches that we take in a particular setting, we might think about going with our gut or kind of going with, you're using a whole different set of heuristics we might think of for making a decision. And what we've done is to really say, what is it that we see as our core purpose? What are the outcomes that we'd like to see? What's that desired future that we hope for the families that we're working with? And as we work towards that goal, trying to find ways to integrate data into our practice to help give us that insight that we need to see how we're progressing towards that goal. So a good example of this, actually, that came up recently and I can let Delaney and uh, Shantiqua speak to it as well, but you know, we've, we've taken a look at our data, and what we found is that many of our families have just are, are working, are working and are employed, but have very modest incomes, a median income of maybe $800 a month, which in a housing market like Charlotte, it makes it very difficult to find housing. And so what we're trying to do is figure out how to communicate that we have families who are working hard and have lots of needs, but currently don't have quite the means necessarily to make that transition into secure housing. And so having that, that data point and some of that information in front of us, it gives us that, that information we need to move forward. So one question I have for both of you too, for our listeners who may not be familiar, how do we understand family homelessness and how does that maybe differ in terms of our conception or how we define it from what we might traditionally think of as the experience of being homeless? Well, family homelessness is really complex. And I think it begins with understanding the difference between family and individual homelessness. So I always start, like if I'm at work or just conversations outside of work, just talking a little bit to that. Family homelessness is almost this invisible population because we don't see children on the side of the streets like we do um, individual, more chronically homeless individuals in our community. So family homelessness is complex in a way that whatever one person is experiencing, that's going to affect the rest of the family. So like we're talking about health, if the child is stressed and experiencing health problems, that's going to determine the health problems within the parent as well, and vice versa. We need a healthy parent to have a healthy child. So that transfer between the two makes it a lot more complicated. That's why our services are two generational and we focus just as much on parent outcomes as we do on child outcomes because it's outcomes for the entire family. Um, So the disruption itself is so complex in a way that depending on the type of living situation they're in, 
affects the other determinants within wherever they're staying. So living in a motel is very different than maybe living with friends or living in a shelter. So can't really just say it. Family homelessness looks one way. It's a little complicated. It looks a lot of different ways is what, is what I think you're saying, right? So you're right. If a parent is experiencing health difficulties, it could trickle down to the child as well. If a parent is experiencing emotional distress, again, it trickles down to the child, even with depression or anxiety. If a parent is experiencing depression because as a parent, we say, we want to take care of our family, my charge as a parent to take care of my family in whatever capacity that is. And if things get in that way, unemployment, I lost my job, I get sick myself and can't work, then it impedes my charge as a parent to care for my family in that way. It can lead to depression and, or even anxiety. What am I going to do next? And so we can see that trickle down into kiddos, which then affects all other factors of their life, relationships, school, um, et cetera. And there's the direct and indirect too. So the cause of homelessness is like the disruption, but then because of that, there's other factors that come into play. So it could, the homelessness could be because they were evicted, right. but then because of the eviction, that parent might lose their job. Right. So then now you have two things against you, an eviction on your record, now you're unemployed. So that's why we work so hard to, to really identify the direct and indirect and underlying issues of the homelessness, because it's not the, it's a returning cycle if you don't really address everything. I would add to that to make it real, what Delina is talking about, probably about two weeks ago, a great volunteer, her heart is in the right place. She has a lunch buddy. And so what that means is that she comes into the school to mentor a young man. And she was wondering, why is he experiencing tooth decay and why for so long? Why isn't his mom taking him to the dentist? And she was really harping on this. I've been coming for X amount of months and I just don't understand why mom can't take him. And so just educating the volunteers that are coming into the lives of our children and who are trying to help. Mom, yes, would love to take the child to the dentist. Mom does not have transportation. And during the day, mom is concerned with trying to find a job while her child is in school. And so mom is in complete survival mode, trying to get things done, trying to connect the dots for her family, that it is not an intentional neglect, but she is needing to have other supports around her to help take some of that off of her while she's trying to get things up and running. And so, you know, the physical health of the child is being neglected, again, not intentionally, but being able to educate people who are wanting to come in and do good work and really help so they can have a firm understanding of what they're getting into and the, really the population that we serve. So there are a few words that I heard over the past 10 to 15 minutes. Safety, needs, community, housing. And so this kind of takes me back to graduate school and even undergraduate with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you had mentioned earlier about the student who wasn't at school because they were out panhandling. That was that individual's needs for whatever capacity, whether it's because I need to eat, I need to save money so my family can get a cheap hotel, what have you. It's what they need in order to survive. I'm going to take it back a little bit further. When we first started talking a few minutes ago about how is a student expected to learn and to comprehend complex information when they're hungry or when perhaps they're scared because 
I don't even know if we're going to be in the same hotel room tonight or even my home. We're going to get evicted. And so organizations like A Child's Place, you're looking at the social determinants of health and then you're implementing strategies and techniques to provide support for families and for children so they can become successful and so they don't fall through the gaps and so they don't become a statistic, right? So if you can talk a little bit about more of the work that that your organization, that y'all are doing, that addresses the social factors that impact children and families' health and well-being. So yes, so you're right on point. It is a lot of those things and a lot of those things in which we take for granted, I think, being in this field. So a child coming into the schoolhouse, mom, 92% of our population are single moms, coming into the schoolhouse to register her her child. And we find out at the school level that there's no permanent address. And so that's where it starts. And so that that application or that enrollment packet is then brought down to the child's place office where we are sitting mom down and we're engaging. We're building a relationship because that's the foundation. There is a huge trust factor that has to be built with the mom for her to let us into not only her life, but her child's life, for her to feel safe and that she recognizes that the person sitting across from her has her best interest, her child's best interest, and will help her connect and get the things that that she and her child needs. So that's the first step. And then once we build that rapport and we're engaging, we are then looking at what are the goals? What do you want? Many of our our families come to us wanting long-term housing, followed by that they want their basic needs met, food. Um, And so we understand that and we immediately try to leverage the resources that we have Thankfully, from um, community partners, we try to give them and and meet them where they are by giving them things, right? Um, Whether that be a uniform for the child, whether that is a referral to the food bank, whether that is school supplies so that child is coming into this school prepared and they're not singled out because they don't have a notebook or they do not have a pencil. That's the beginning of it. But then we establish those goals in order to get to that housing that you desire. Are you working? Do you have income? You may not be working, but are there other means of income that can help support? What are your natural supports? Who else is in your life, in your child's life that you can lean on? And so those are the things that we try to figure out um, when we're trying to devise a plan. And it's led by the mom because we cannot say what success looks like for this mom. We can have our own mental picture of that, but everyone is coming to this work with their perspective. And so once we have figured, we have figured out the plan, then over the course of the school year, and, um, and I'll talk about the community work that we're doing, the community-based model, we are really working to meet those goals. And we're in, in this work to get this mom housing ready for that long-term housing that, that she desires. And so we're checking in with mom, we're checking in with the child, making sure from the, per- the school personnel perspective that that child is not missing anything, that we're trying to coordinate with Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, that the transportation is taken care of. So we're minimizing the days absent. Um, and this is an ongoing process. But if we deem that through um, motivation and through the desire of being able to knock out some of those goals, we can then move mom towards our community-based program 
where we have a social worker who picks that case up or that client up, and she's advocating to our community partners like Community Link, like Charlotte Housing Authority, for this mom to be placed in housing. So those are the things that we can control. But outside of that, there's a, a huge uncontrollable factor here, and that's the housing market right now. We've been talking about it. I'm sure you've heard about it. Um, the affordable housing crisis, it is very real um, for our clients. We just gave one um, grandmother, actually, a voucher um, through the Partnership of Charlotte Housing Authority, a $1,300 voucher. And she's having a difficult time finding somewhere to stay for her and her two grandchildren, $1,300. And so she has had this voucher in her hands since January, and in May it expires. And so we're working with those community partners who are experts in the housing to try to solidify a unit for her. And then when that day comes, because I'm going to I'm going to speak it, when that day comes, our social worker is continuing to stay in this um, caregiver's life because it's not good enough just to obtain housing, but it's really being able to sustain that, to put that child on a trajectory towards academic success. So that child is not bouncing around from school to school. Their attendance is maintained. Um, so their academic outcomes are increased. And so that, in a nutshell, the things that we do and what we desire. And it's all in the in the hopes that we are eliminating intergenerational homelessness. Right. So that child is not looking at this current situation as this will be what I what I when I grow up, this is this will not be my life. I think there's so much there too to think about with respect to how the process of trying to obtain housing, the challenge of living through a housing crisis, what that toll has on a person's um, health and mental health. And I was wondering if you two could talk a little bit about what that looks like with those you serve at ACP. What what is that impact of housing and homelessness on someone's you know, kind of physical and mental well-being. I'll say just generally speaking, we know that the disruption of the instability causes more stress to a family. And with that, there's increased risk for mental health problems. And that shows also in just regular medical health care problems and emotional health as well. Um, so we see a lot of our students struggling behaviorally and even students that aren't struggling as far as poor behavior in school, they're still emotionally not able to cope through a lot of those stresses as well. I would imagine that it also has an impact on their physical well-being. You know, early age is when you develop, you start growing. Your body grows. There's emotional growth, like you mentioned. But I also feel like there's something about physical health that the stressors that you, um, you guys addressed, it has an impact on a young child. But then also their family. We look at the family structure and how pivotal it is for children and, and families to have a, affordable and proper housing. But then also food, access to food, um, access to information, um, where, they, where they live. Can they, can they go to the public library, for example? Transportation. Is public transportation an option for them if they don't have a way to get around? So I do feel like a, a child's place is, a, is an agency that not only addresses the social determinants of health, but you guys are actively doing something about it. A little bit of uh, transparency here. So I do have a, a linkage to a child's place. Uh, way back in the day in my uh, graduate school years, a child's place is where I did my internship. And so I um, had the, the opportunity 
to, to work with young children and families in several schools um, in the Charlotte community, Mary Oaks, Shamrock Gardens Elementary School. And those were some really wonderful years for me. I learned a lot from the, the, the staff at A Child's Place, the organization, but then also the, the kiddos and the families that I got a chance to work with taught me a whole lot. And so I'm grateful that A Child's Place offered me that opportunity. And I'm so glad that you guys are still doing the work and you're doing it strong. Um, I will say a lot of our work is so vital on our partnerships in the community, especially healthcare providers. Um, so even if there is an existing organization that can provide that service to our families, we are here to kind of remove those barriers um, because our families are in intense crisis it's a lot harder for them to access. So we're here to, to fundraise and use our services to help with bus passes to, to get to appointments and um, just little things like that. So because it's a little bit more challenging for our families because they're the most at risk and the most vulnerable, we acknowledge that we kind of have to take it a little step further and the access piece is a lot more difficult. So there's been so much great information here um, in this episode for our listeners. And I know I certainly enjoy always having a conversation with you all. So uh, for those of um, people who would like to get in touch with you to learn more about your work, what's the best way that they can do that? They can always go on our website, www.achouseplace.org, that's O-R-G, and they can click Donate Now. Our impact is really the social workers, the experts that we are hiring to come into the schools to really do the work, um, what I like to call the miracle work, of transforming the lives of children and families. But if finances is not the way that they would like to plug in, I totally understand that. We can always use the time of individuals to come in and be lunch buddies, and that is sitting across from a child and spending that valuable time getting to know the child, exposing that child through a conversation to things that that child would probably not have exposure to, like different words. Our kids are behind in um, reading and math. And so just having that dialogue and reading with that child would be phenomenal. And then when I'm talking about reading, there's opportunities to come in and tutor. Um, we always love tutors. Uh, we can get you plugged in and making sure that you have the tools and material to do that in a, an effective way. And if you think that one is not good enough and you want to come in and really look at how do I have maximum impact and have 25 kids that will love me, and you can be a classroom assistant. Teachers love to have that extra set of hands. The kids love it. And you can pick an opportunity one day a week to come in um, and go into the classroom and be an assistant for that teacher. Great. Shantuka and Delina, thank you so much for your time and your commitment to creating healthy and thriving communities through your work, dedication, and advocacy. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And to access this episode, along with notes and information about a child's place, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com. Thanks, Drew. And thanks to our listeners for their curiosity and willingness to learn something new today. Until next time, remember, strong always always strong.